So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1370, Catherine Finney, author of the new book, Build the Damn Thing. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. When you are part of a marginalized community, whether you're a woman, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're poor, whether you're uh, a racial minority, the challenges can seem overwhelming. (laughs) It could just seem like everything is against you. And I'm here to say that the universe does not want you to lose. People may want you to lose, right? People may put these sort of structures, but the universe does not want you to lose. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today has been called the fairy godmother of tech startups. Catherine Finney joins us. She is a serial entrepreneur and the new author of the book, Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business If You're Not a Rich White Guy. In the book, Catherine offers a hard-won, battle-tested guide for every entrepreneur that the establishment has left out. A little bit more about Catherine. She's the managing partner of Genius Guild, a $20 million venture fund and studio that invests in Black founders. She's also the founder and past CEO of Digital Undivided, a groundbreaking social enterprise focusing on creating a world where women own their work. She started Digital Undivided after selling her company, The Budget Fashionista, a pioneering lifestyle media company. She is a Yale-trained epidemiologist. She's received numerous honors and awards, including the Echoing Green Fellowship, Eisenhower Fellowship, Entrepreneur Magazine's Women to Watch, Marie Claire's 10 Women to Watch, and Black Enterprise's 40 Under 40 list. Here's Catherine Finney. Catherine Finney, welcome to So Money. It is so nice to connect with you. It is so great to chat with you today. You know, we're going to talk so much about your new book and your own personal journey. Catherine, I was, you know, reading a little bit into your book and got pretty emotional and teared up reading about, you know, your dad's journey and how that inspired you. Before we get to those awesome stories, I have a fun fact to share about you, which um, I was looking through your bio and I realized that back in 2009, I think that our roads crossed before we even knew about each other. I probably didn't even know your name, but I remember it was the recession. It was about 2009, 2008. And I was a journalist and sitting at my desk at work. And I realized maybe... um, there is something to the effect of the word fashionista. <laughs> so I think I went and I Googled like fashionista.com or fa- and it was taken. Um, it was like, sorry, this, this has been trademarked or this website has been taken. And I think you may have been the one. Who had taken yeah, the name? Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. You've always been ahead of ahead of the times. Yeah, yeah. You know that time period was really interesting. I, I talk about it in the book because I came to entrepreneurship pretty much. I, I don't want to say by accident because I've always been kind of an entrepreneur, but it wasn't like I 
knew that the budget fashionista, the site and the company I created was going to be something mm. because when I started, there was really no business models for the internet. This was like in 2002, like no one knew exactly what this whole internet thing was going to be, what was the successful business model. It was right after the first bust. Um, if we remember all the like, you know, pet things and stuff like oh, that, yeah. that like yeah. would completely kapooey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, so no one knew what this like thing was. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, to, to see where it's gone, um, almost 20 years later, 20 years later, it's been pretty, pretty incredible. And to be there at the beginning of it and be there at the beginning as a woman and a woman mm-hmm. of color in particular has been really interesting. Well, speaking of beginnings, Catherine, you are a Yale-trained epidemiologist. How does that person become an entrepreneur and not just any entrepreneur, like someone who has you know, a serial entrepreneur, I, I can call you, right? Someone who is so successful and now teaching others. When did you know you were done with being an epidemiologist? Oh, so, you know, I think uh, as someone who comes from very pragmatic parents, I'm from mm-hmm. Minnesota. It's like the heartland of prag- pragmatism. Um, <laughs> and I often talk with friends of mine who come, who have immigrant parents who are first generation Americans. And I did not leave my job as an epidemiologist until I had external validation. And that was when I got my first book deal from Random House. And I think I was like, oh my God, somebody wants me to write about shopping on a budget and they're yeah. going to pay me for it. And it's like random house too. So it's not like, you know, like some small time thing. This is like a real, you know, publisher. And and it was just that this external validation. I think that happens whenever you are a member of a marginalized community mm-hmm. that you want someone else to tell you that it's okay for you to do this big idea that you really didn't need any permission to do. But we're always seeking that, right? Because there's, it's such a big risk for us to, to, to step out and try new things. And so we need that external validation that says, hey, you can do it. Um, for ourselves, for our families, for other people. Um, I remember, you know, no one knew what a blog was in my family. They were like, what is that? Like, what is she doing? Didn't she go to Yale? What is she writing? Also, it was a side hustle, which again was also kind of a newer endeavor, um, especially for somebody who probably didn't appear to need one. You know, you Mm. were like an Ivy League educated scientist. Clearly you have a lot of ambition. Well, you know, the communities I grew up in, which are, you know, African-American communities in the Midwest, everyone always had a side gig. Um, so you might be like a surgeon during the day, but you you braided hair at night. I'm like not even <laughs> joking. Um, and so everyone always had a side gig. Everyone always had something else that they were doing, a beauty shop in their basement or, uh, you know, a mechanic in their garage or some sort of side gig in Internally, we call it, you know, I got a guy or I got, I got a girl, like, you know, I got somebody, right. Right. (laughs) Who can can do that for you. And so I always grew up around that. And then having a grandmother who was an entrepreneur herself and spending a lot of time with her, I'm named after her. Hmm. um, That had a big impact on me as well. So being coming an entrepreneur really isn't that outside the norm, as you would think, mm-hmm. uh, considering the communities I came from and the and the role models I had growing up. 
Right. Well, your book is called Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business If You're Not a Rich White Guy. We've sort of hinted at it up till now, what this book will be about. Your father was probably maybe the first non-rich white guy who went and built the damn thing, or rather not so much built the damn thing, but he he showed- He did the damn thing. He did the damn thing. He did. He took risk, mm-hmm. which is not, again, something where if you are, and I'm also the daughter of immigrants, was not instructed to take many risks <laughs> in life. Let's just put it nicely. I was like, my my path was like yours, like go to school and, yeah. and invest in yourself. But, you know, taking a risk and starting a business was not encouraged. Your father, though, modeled a lot of entrepreneurial values as well in you as like you mentioned, your grandmother. It's in your blood. Um, but tell us the story about your dad, maybe, because that for me was, it really hit home because I found some parallels in in what my father modeled for me as well. I thought it was special. You know, my father was this brilliant man who happened to be born Black in the 1940s, 1950s in the United States. And And I start there because I think that defined the limitations that was put on him. Um, this person who really was unlimited. And so, um, my father grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, from a, a family of um, factory workers. He did what everyone does in, in Milwaukee is you go work for the brewery at that time. Um, he had some troubles as a teen um, and had an option to either go to jail or go to the army. And so he went to Vietnam and he had three tours, came back and worked at, at the brewery. And, but always had this like vision of himself that was bigger than just being a brewery worker. So he went to the brewery, but he was also a realtor on the side. He had the great fortune of meeting my mom who came from a very middle-class background. And that was really important because in our communities, particularly in the late 60s and 70s, you didn't really see that modeled that much. Mm-hmm. And so my mom really modeled the possibilities for my dad, um, like what what he could do. And so he went back to school um, with two kids. Uh, I'm still marvel at the fact that he graduated salutorian from his high school um, with two kids and working a job <laughs> and, um, but continued to work at the factory at the brewery because that was really great money. And the brewery shut down in the early eighties. What happened in Milwaukee was no different than what happened in Gary, Indiana, Detroit, um, Ohio, like other places in sort of the, the manufacturing belt of the United States. And when those companies left, it completely devastated communities because the companies were the community. Um, we hung out together. They did family events. And so when they left, it was just this gaping hole. But my dad, again, had this vision of himself that was stronger than really any of the restrictions that was put on him. So he went to a workforce development a program um, that was teaching C++ in like 1981. Um, And it was taught by some man from IBM who was like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to teach displaced factory workers how to code. And this was before coding was even a thing. No one really knew what it Mm was. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, C++ is the foundational computing language of most of the programs we use today. And my dad fell in love. Um, we often joke that, you know, the the computer was the other woman in my parents' marriage. <laughs> um, he just had this aptitude. And so 
had an opportunity to take an entry-level position at a place called Digital Equipment Deck, which is an early computing company that was later bought by Compaq, which was bought by HP. And he moved my family from Milwaukee, where we knew everyone. Both sets of my grandparents were there. Um, All our family, everyone we knew was there. To Minneapolis, where we knew no one. There was not a single person we knew. And geographically, they're not far from each other, but culturally, they're like on the other side of the moon. Um, Milwaukee's very blue collar, very factory working, very community oriented. Minneapolis, on the other hand, is very corporate. Um, And you have a lot of major Fortune 500 corporations from 3M to Target to Best Buy to others that are located there. And so it was a completely different world. But my dad had this vision and my mother also encouraged and shared that vision because she had a great career that she had in Milwaukee, but she saw the opportunity, this, this tech thing. I don't know if she saw it, if my dad convinced her, I don't know what happened there, (laughs) but, but, and he took this risk. And so I grew up as this little black girl seeing my family take risk and win. And he excelled at digital equipment, got recruited to Microsoft when Microsoft was kind of like the the Google of the days. Mm -hmm. Um, And that changed my family's financial future, but not just my family's financial future. It changed everyone around us, this whole community, the people who benefited from that success. I'm still finding that out today of people who were like, your dad did this for me. Wow. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just such a lesson in living. And he passed when I was 25 mm-hmm. and he had almost a thousand people at his, it wasn't a funeral. It was, a, it turned, it was a wake that turned into a roast because my dad was a <laughs> great conversationalist. It turned into all these jokes. He would have loved it. He would have absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. But, you know, if you can imagine being 25 years old and you just lost a parent who you mostly identify with, you look like him, you talk like him, everything about you is like you're a mirror of your father. And you look out and you see a thousand people who came to Minnesota in January, right? Mm -hmm. No one comes to Minnesota in January (laughs) to like celebrate his life. I mean, it was just such a lesson on living Mm -hmm. and how to live a life that is purposeful and values that when you leave, you literally made the world a better place. Like, And so it just was so impactful for me. And it had a big impact on how I view my life and how I, how I live my life and what I want to do in my life and the power of, of money and access and technology to really change a whole community. At the end of your dad's story in your book, Narrative, you write, the universe is conspiring for your greatness. And I feel as though that was is one of your first messages to your reader through the story of your father and highlighting his journey points that the universe is conspiring for your greatness. Can you expand on that? Because I thought that was really powerful and, and begs repeating over and over. You know, I think when you are part of a marginalized community, whether you're a woman, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're poor, whether you're uh, a racial minority, it can, the challenges can seem overwhelming. (laughs) It could just seem like everything is against you. And I'm here to say that the universe does not want you to lose. People may want you to lose, right? 
People may put these sort of structures, but the universe does not want you to lose. You are made of light. We all are. We all enter this world made of light. And the universe wants that light to shine bright. Mm-hmm. And it may seem like that's not the truth, but it is the truth. And as soon as we realize that, then we're able to really step into who we are. And I firmly believe that because there are so many reasons why I should not be here today. Um, There's so many things that happen. There's such perfect madness that happened to bring me here to be on this wonderful podcast with you. As we say, we don't. We didn't come this far to only get this far. <laughs> exactly. We didn't come this far to only get this far. I love that. And so believing that, that the universe wants you to win is so important when you are what I call in the book, a builder, someone who's not a rich white guy, who, who mm-hmm. structures haven't been created for your success. Um, it's so important for us to believe that. Um, it, it is how we win. Um And so I think it's super important. I open the book with that quote. And then I, of course, follow it up with, you know, the Lizzo quote. I took a DNA test and found out I'm 100% that bitch because I also (laughs) believe that too. (laughs) The universe is conspiring for your greatness and you're also Mm -hmm. that bitch. Mm -hmm. Um, And, (laughs) but yeah, I think it's just, it's so important for us to believe that and believe in our light and understand our greatness because every day we're told that we're not. Um, Mm -hmm. And especially more so now than ever. If there's anything that I hope people get from this book is not just, you know, the mechanics of building a company, but that we can build it and that we can build it and be successful. There's so many mechanics in the book, which is what makes it unique and beyond your own stories. There's there's a lot in here. And I want to get to at some point in our conversation, get in the bag, step six, <laughs> getting the money to grow your business. Mm-hmm. Back to your own story, Catherine, I remember reading about how after you did Budget Fashionista, and then you were on to your next endeavor, you entered an incubator. And that is where you were affronted with a a lot of the things that you write about that become, you know, these these are the realities we have to overcome. Can you take us to that moment and and tell us what were specifically some of the things that you encountered? I mean, you write in the book about you might encounter an investor who says, "Great pitch, but I just don't do black women." <laughs> I was like, "Was that said out loud? Like it doesn't it have was. to be." Oh my god, was that to you? It was to me, and I was confused what he meant oh, by "I don't what? do black women," right? <laughs> I, I was I was a little confused by that. I didn't want to ask, actually, because I was like, I don't I don't want to know what you mean by that. Yeah, you know, I entered into this incubator program. It was in the early days of kind of what we know now as like the startup world, which was in 2009. And the idea was that I was going to build this beauty company for Black women. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds ridiculous now with so much out there in terms of Black women in beauty and well-documented exits and you know, things like that. But at that time, people were completely oblivious, um, particularly um, white men. And so I entered this incubator program where it was the first time in my life that people had no expectations of me, not low expectations, but no, they just literally didn't think I could do it, period, in a discussion as a a black woman. And I had never experienced that. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, so I obviously knew how to be around um, white guys. That's where I spent most of my childhood, but I had never experienced people just thinking I couldn't do it. Um, and so 
you know, I, I entered it, I had stayed and I went to do a pitch and they would call you up to do these pitches. They never called me up in like 10 weeks because again, they didn't think I could talk. Mind you, at that time, I was a monthly correspondent for the Today Show. So I was on the Today Show talking <laughs> to like Al Roker and other people. <laughs> and they literally didn't think I could like put two sentences together. I mean, just the the arrogance of mediocre white men. It's like, it's just so impressive. Um, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I got up and did this pitch and it was great. And, it, and you could hear, hear a pin drop when I was finished because they were so surprised that I could talk. So I get up and do it and it's great and everyone's giving me praise until they turn to the other folks who are my colleagues in the incubator and they proceeded to pick me apart in the strangest ways. So one person asked me, did I know of any fashion bloggers or beauty bloggers? And I'm like, dude, I'm like the dean. of <laughs> like this. I like invented, I wanted to say, excuse me, like, I invented this shit. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I'm an OG. I'm an OG. And this was in 2009, I was an OG. Um, And then another guy said, I don't think you can relate to other black women because you have an accountant. This is a white guy who said this to me in front of about 200 people. And any person who's ever been put in that sort of position where someone says just the most effed up thing to you and, and you can't respond, right? Because if I would have like, walked over and like, you know, screamed at him, it would have been, oh, there's a crazy black woman. We told you they can't do it. And it wasn't just about me. It would have reflected on the entire community. Um, And so I had to sit there and take that aggression. And I wouldn't even call it a microaggression. It was a very much a a, a macro, like (laughs) aggression. That was a big aggression. And I had to take it. And it just really stuck with me. Um, and it influenced me in starting Digital Undivided because I was like, mm-hmm. if I'm this person who has all this stuff and I'm getting this, what happens to everyone else? And while I did, we did something called Project I Am. It was a, a sort of a landscape analysis uh, to see exactly how many um, black women and then later Latinx women were receiving funding because people were telling me that, oh, black women, this is in 2012, we're getting so much investment. But like, I couldn't actually find the people. It was like one black woman who got the investment and they would count her over and over again. So they were counting this one black woman as like 15 black women. Um, and it was like, no, it's the same one. Um, and we did this report and the whole idea was like to release it. And then I was going to actually um, close up shop. Because it just didn't seem like anyone cared about investing and supporting and growing um, entrepreneurship amongst Black women, but amongst the Black community as a whole. And we released this report and it just fundamentally shifted venture capital um, in ways that continue to vibrate through this industry. There's not one person who, particularly if you are a Black general partner or a woman of color general partner who has not used Project Diane's data somewhere in your pitch deck. Um, Mm -hmm. And so to see the impact of that, but all of that came from that experience in that incubator of completely being dismissed without reason or cause. It's so powerful. And yet I, I, I feel terrible that you had to experience that moment and it probably wasn't that one moment but when you were when you got up to finally talk in that room and what happened after that did anyone come up to you and say that was unacceptable 
No, I was the only besides my my ex-husband. We were the only two black people in the room. We were the only two people with like kind of a tan. You had no allies, it sounds like. I had no allies. But you know what? An example of the universe conspiring for your greatness. Mm. Fast forward 12, 13 years later, this particular incubator person is raising a fund and trying to raise from an LP who happens to be a very big LP Mm. in what we do at Genius Guild. And of course, that LP asked me about this person and this incubator and this organization. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And I told them the truth. And they didn't get the money. And it, it was probably one of the biggest people you could get on board. It would have been very big for them to have it. But it's like the universe was like, I didn't have to plot or be angry or carry any bitterness towards um, what happened to me because the universe was like, I got you. And at some point, it's going to come back because it always does. It always comes back. And it came back. And I was like, actually, after having a conversation with that LP, I had to take a moment and just, you know, in the African-American community, we have a saying that says, look at God. Like when something happens where you're just like, that is just crazy. And it's like phenomenal. And it's like a kind of an aha moment. That's exactly what I said. I was like, look at God. Like, but, but. And for me to then be in that position of power, mm-hmm. who would have thought, I think if you would have asked him 12, 13 years ago, would I have been in that position after being dismissed in that way? Nobody in that room would have said that. No one in that room would have thought that. No. But look at God. Hmm. I'm going to spend another three hours with you, but we have only a few minutes. And I promised we would get to some advice along the lines of, how to get the money. Mm-hmm. Just finished watching um, the, the dropout, right? About, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, forgive me. I'm getting over COVID. Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. And only bringing this up because I, there was a scene where she's asking for money from these Silicon Valley investors. <laughs> and, um, you know, in hindsight, probably wise for them not to give her any money. But it was more for me, it was the the interaction where she was completely dismissed because she was a female. It wasn't They weren't even mm-hmm. like looking at her deck. And then she's a white woman. So where yeah. does that leave women of color? I know where it leaves them. They don't get the money at nope. all. The racism is everywhere. You know, money is rarely the problem. It's a problem, but it's mm-hmm. rarely the problem. The way I tell entrepreneurs to think about money, particularly anytime, anytime you have to give up equity ownership in whatever it is that you're doing, is to only do it when it's an opportunity for growth. Use it as rocket fuel, not to build a rocket. And I think that's really helpful when you're talking about sort of equity-based investments, which is where I'm at, right? I give, I invest money and I take a percentage of someone's company. And it's always think of that. Because we're together for the life of the company. We're in a marriage. And it's a marriage that you can't get out of. (laughs) It's really, really, really hard for you to get out of. So so think in that sort of way. In the beginning, it is always best for you to do as much as possible to build it yourself and not spend really any money. And this is where I think, you know, Mm -hmm. Eric Rees and the whole um, Lean Startup Build, Measure, Learn loop is so important. And it's even more important for um, founders of color, women founders, others for whom we don't make the full dollar as, as our white male counterparts do. We have a lot to lose. There's a bigger risk for us. And so one of the things I think that Build, Measure, Learn loop does, it de-risks it for us. 
Mm-hmm. Trying to do as much of that loop, you know, build, measure, learn, build, let's keep doing it, doing it with as little money as possible that you spend until you have product market fed, which is your product, you know, people want to buy your product and you know it because they're buying your product, right? <laughs> um, it, and so until you have that, I always advise don't spend any money, don't take any money. There are exceptions, right? If you are building a high-tech company in biotech where you actually need a lot of startup costs to just build it, that's one thing. But if you're building an online magazine SaaS platform, you you don't need a lot of money to get that started. There's a lot of -of out-of-box solutions that can get you started and you can continue to build measure learn feedback loop until you get to a point where you see that there's a product market fit there and that you're using this money to get you to the next step. And I think it's really important to think in that way because it also helps you to think of what money to take. Because right. money, not all money costs the same. Some money is very expensive. And so thinking through, through that, there are so many other options. There's crowd equity platforms. There's crowdfunding. Particularly if you have a product, um, funding platforms like Indiegogo, even Kickstarter still and others are great ways to get customers to basically pay for your build, to to pay for you to build your product before you've actually built your product. There are also great ways to bring other people in and expand the investor pool. Um, Bank loans are a little bit hard to get now. Um, It used to be a little bit easier, but they're hard to get. The irony of it is that banks are supposed to loan money. That's part of (laughs) their job. Yeah. but using crowdfunding platforms, using your networks, um, before even going to get ventured, checking out angel networks. Um, these are people who are, you know, in your industry who want to help up and coming startups have a lot more flexible capital. They're usually wealthy people who just want to see you win. And so reaching out to angel groups as well, all of this is great because I always say VC money is very, very expensive. Venture capital money is expensive. And you also are bringing on a boss because I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I'm going to want a bunch of reports and a bunch of things from you. If you don't want to do that, then don't take venture capital money. Mm. I'm hearing your story and I'm sure that you've experienced what you would identify as like failures along the way, (laughs) personal business, obviously nothing that stopped you, but do you feel as though you had this pressure to overproduce and try very hard to not fail because it's very hard for women to get a second chance, let alone black women, women of color. And that prevails. I mean, I'm watching We Crashed, right? Where Adam Newman blew billions of dollars. And I'm just seeing my Twitter now blow up because he's make, he's got a he's come, he's back. He's getting more yeah. investor dollars. How? Parting advice for those of us listening who are worried about failing, because you know this is a big theme throughout your yeah. book too, and how we need to just you know overcome it. But how? Everyone who's ever done anything big has failed. Everyone. Um, I talk about Beyonce in the book because I mean, well, one, she's Beyonce, but how <laughs> they lost on Star Search. Um, Destiny Shout lost on Star Search to some rock group called Skeleton Crew. Um, if you can imagine if Beyonce like chucked it in at that point and said, ah, I'm not going to do this because, you know, we couldn't even beat these dudes from like Ohio or wherever they were from. Um, everyone has failed. It is not the failure that's the problem. That's actually not the point of it. And I always talk about looking at failure as a data point. What did you learn from that? 
Um, I have failed in many ways <laughs> in my life and continue to do. And I always ask myself, what did I learn from that? What was the thing that I got from that? What's the data point, which is the epidemiologist in me? What is the data point that I got that then is going to help me make a different decision next time? And I think when you reframe it in that way, it takes pressure off of you because we can be the hardest on ourselves, particularly women. I'm a mom, so I'm like extra critical of myself because I have this person who I'm responsible for and who looks up to me and I want to make sure that I'm the best person I can possibly be for him. So I feel a lot of pressure. And then you add on this role of being a lifetime role of being really this innovator and always the first out in front. And when you are a woman and a woman of color, particularly a black woman, you don't have a lot of protective armor. So many times you don't have any. And so to be out in front and know that you are blazing trails for other people and have a full understanding of who you are and what you mean in this world, it can be, um, it can be incredibly stressful, incredibly limiting, and also this crazy fear of failure because you know you don't get to own your failure. Um, your failure is not just, it's not Catherine fails, it's Black women failed, or it's the whole entire Finney family failed, or, you know, it's, it, I don't get to own it. And I think for those of us who are builders, who are not entitled, who are not rich white men, you know, the failure for us is greater because we don't own it. Mm-hmm. It is owned by our entire communities. And that just creates such a pressure for us. You're absolutely right about that. Well, I'm going to leave more for everybody else to read your book, Build the Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business If You're Not a Rich White Guy. Catherine Finney, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And congratulations. Thank you so much. And know that the universe is conspiring for your greatness, truly. Mm, I'll never forget that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Catherine for joining us. Learn more about Catherine at her website, catherinefinney.com. Her book again is called Build the Damn Thing. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. I'll see you back here on Friday for Ask Farnoosh. And I hope your day is so money. Money.